Okay, so today we are continuing the Kingdom of God series, Chapter 4, Introduction to Word Pictures, Historical Narrative, Types, and Case Laws. Those are four concepts in the scriptures that will help you see the kingdom of God better as the major theme throughout all scripture. If you remember in Chapter 1, we just looked at some of the verses that most directly state something that thousands of other verses bring out, that the kingdom of God is the primary theme of all scripture. And that um, it is not what most people think it is today, going to heaven or uh, primarily concerned with the afterlife. It's actually primarily concerned with God's rule and God's reign here and now. Uh, there's a great book on the Gospels by a guy named N.T. Wright. Uh, maybe a little mistitled, but it said how God became king, because he always was king. But uh, uh, but it's a study of the Gospels. And uh so the reign of Jesus Christ is a present phenomenon, and it's uh, one that you begin to enter into when you're born again into the kingdom of God, when you receive a new spirit, a new heart, a new relationship with God, when you're reconciled to God, uh, when you're granted repentance, and so forth. So, um, and uh, that, that reign continues uh, as you as you appropriate the three tools of God's grace, his word, his spirit, and his church, and you grow into the image of Christ, and you grow more in harmony with the people of God and the purposes of God, which are always in the people of God, God has always destined to express his reign throughout the earth and to bring his glory, his temple, his sanctuary to the whole earth through his people. And so that's uh, just a little little bit of a taste of what the kingdom of God is all about. We define the kingdom of God in 12 statements in chapter 2. Chapter 3, we looked at major biblical themes. So now we're just, again, looking to the idea of word pictures, historical narratives, what types and case laws. And we're just going to be on word pictures for for some time. So today, uh, when we want to talk about this idea that word pictures is also called biblical imagery. Uh, they are also metaphors at times, similes, parables sometimes, but they are, they are word pictures, mental pictures that God gives us in the scriptures to express uh, himself and his purposes, his eternal decree. And uh, one of the things that you need to know about biblical themes and word pictures is that hundreds of them repeat themselves throughout the Bible. So that's the first thing I want you to know, is that hundreds of them repeat themselves throughout the Bible. Almost all of them get their fountainhead, to use a, another word picture, or their uh, starting point. Uh, what do you call the starting point of a river? The head, headwater? the headwaters. Their headwaters uh, in Genesis and Exodus. Uh, today, we're just going to look at a number of themes that start in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and repeat themselves and continue throughout the whole Bible. Now, uh, I also want to point out that many of these are inextricably intertwined with other themes. The themes interweave and are connected, and, and you can't separate that all, so even to discuss them gets a little hard because if you discuss this theme, you you're inevitably touch on this theme and so forth. So um, there are so many uh, 
that I didn't, uh, I decided not to reread Genesis 1, 2, and 3, but just to make a list of what the ones that came to my mind. And as I knew I would, as soon as I got done, I had to go shave and get ready to be here. I began to think of more of them that I was, oh yeah. And even a couple of ones that earlier in the week, I thought, don't forget that one. So there's, there's way more than, I think I have 15 or 16 of them listed here. Some of them I've developed a little bit more than others. Some of them I'll just develop verbally as we go today. But um, there's a lot more than j just those, just in the first three chapters of Genesis. For, and, and for instance, here's an example of both points. One that we missed is one of my points. Another point is that they're inextricably intertwined. We're going to look at, at the, the fact that human history starts with a wedding and ends with a wedding, and that marriage is a biblical picture of the relationship between God and his people all through the Bible. And so uh, one of the ones that, that's intertwined with that is the fact that how marriage started was a theme that I forgot to put in, and I wish I had because it's one of the coolest ones, and that's just the theme of sleep and death. Okay, so uh, there was no helpmate suitable for Adam. So God, he is the first Adam. Christ is the second Adam, another one I didn't put in here. Uh, and all through the Bible, Adam is the prototypical man, but he fell from his calling to exercise dominion and to rule as a vice regent of God and to, bring, to, to birth a, a race that would be uh, the, the dominion, would fulfill the dominion mandate and fill the earth with the glory of God. And so Christ became our second Adam to restore us to that. Now, when God uh, wanted to find a bride for Adam, just like he, the, the major theme of the, one of the major themes of the whole Bible is the uh, theme of the kingdom of God, is that God the Father is, is through the Spirit, uh, um, adopting and perfecting and equipping a bride for himself. That's what he's presently doing in the earth. As John pointed out in a recent message, uh, some, if you don't think that's very manly, you, we are the bride of Christ. And uh, our first Adam uh, had a deep sleep, which is a, which is a me metaphorical word picture of death. He died so that out of his side could come his bride. Right? God caused a deep sleep to fall over him. And then... Uh, Christ himself, our second Adam, died so that out of his side, the last thing that happened to him on the cross was they pierced his side with a sphere, spear, sphere, a spear, not a sphere, <laughs> but uh, they pierced his side with a spear, and out of his heart and lung area came both blood and water, also uh, full of biblical imagery. So, uh, these things are, you know, and, and of course that ties into the bride and bridegroom theme. So these things are inextricably intertwined, and I'm not even probably, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm just under uh, half of the ones that I would know of in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and I'm certain there's some that I wouldn't know of in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. So let's just get into some of these from just the first three chapters of Genesis. It's my weekly time to say, is this all the light we have? Can't wait to get the new lights. So um, I should get a lamp and put it here. So uh, the first one I want to talk about is creation. 
The creation itself, the entire creation, is word pictures. The heavens, Psalm, 1, Psalm 19, declare the glory of God in the firmament, his handwork. Uh, one of my favorite Bible teachers who's passed away now, I, re I still remember the day he died, and my daughter Carla, knowing her father like she did, came in to, I was at my, in my office working, and she came in and said, Dad, are you crying? And I said, yes, because uh, James Kennedy had just died, and James Kennedy was a wonderful man of God. And uh, he, I remember listen, listening to a, a, a teaching of his on how the entire zodiac, all of astronomy, the, all the stars in, in the constellations actually tell the gospel. That's how the wise men knew how to look for Christ. And so, uh, of course, Satan will try to twist and pervert everything that God does so we don't worship them, nor do we look to them for guidance. They are what the Bible calls a general revelation, or what theologians call a generation based on Bible ideas. They don't give you specific ideas that will lead you to know God or know Christ, nor can you get guidance from them. That's the demonic religion of astrology. But astronomy itself actually tells the gospel. Um, and everything in it. For instance, the sun... Uh, we're going to read uh, in Psalm, Psalm uh, 19 that we're talking about. It says, the sun is like a bridegroom that comes out of its chamber and uh, runs its course until the full day. Proverbs talks about the path of the righteous is like the coming of the sun, which shines brighter and brighter till the full day. Uh, just, just to announce to 95% uh, of the Christian world today that says it's going to get darker. The Bible is very clear that it's going to get lighter. And it's going to get lighter till the fullness of day, until the glory of God fills the earth. And Jesus is not coming back to anything less. He would never, never suffer the, the ignominy to put on his name that he wasn't able to take dominion of the earth. that he had to do it by force. There are religions in this world, uh, such as Islam, that believe you can, you can uh, establish uh, religion by military might or force. Many of the geopolitical ideas, like the Third Reich and, and the Marxist and so forth, and even, unfortunately, the, a lot of the Western democracies think that you can, you can take dominion by military force, but you cannot. You can only conquer one, will, joy, one joyfully willful heart at a time. If you want to conquer the, the world, change the, heart, the minds of hearts and hearts of men. That has always been God's plan for conquering the world, and he will conquer. He does ride, as Revelation brings out, with a sword to wage war and conquer. So, uh, creation versus cosmos. The very first book, verse of the Bible says, in the big inning, that's the baseball verse, in the big inning, uh, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, that is a slap in the face to ancient Egypt, to ancient Sumeria, to the ancient Incas, Mesopotamians, uh, 
whatever, uh, Mayans, uh, the Chinese, the Indian, all cultures of the world have what's called cosmogenic literature. Cosmos meaning the birth or, or order and the genos meaning the birth. The Hindus, who Anvesh knows some, a few Hindus, we've been sharing a gospel with a few, um, know they, they have a story of how things came to be. But all other nations and all other religions have what's called mythopoeic literature. That is, it's a story with a point, but they don't particularly care about the facts. It's poetry, and it's a story. It's fiction. In all the ancient uh, religions, the polytheists of Greece and Rome and Egypt and Sumeria and Babylonia and, and so forth, all had cosmogenic literature. They all had stories of how the world came to be, and they knew they were myths, but they were would say it doesn't matter they're myths, they're just an explanation. Uh, they're just a story to give us ideas. And all of them started with water, which is a universal symbol of chaos. So the Bible starts with, in the beginning, God, order, is the first thing, not chaos. And the natural state of things is to be orderly. So clean your room. Uh, <laughs> uh, it, it is part of being in the redeemed, restored image of God to impose order on things. Godly people are ordered. They're structured. They're disciplined. They have schedules. They have planner books. They have goals. They do their laundry. They shave, trim their beards, whatever. Some of you ladies should probably not trim your beard. But uh, so um, there, if you study, is, uh, if you study say, uh, Frankfurt's book, uh, Before History, and uh, it's where I learned about cosmogenic mythopoeic literature back in college days, uh, classic work that basically talks about how all the ancient nations have these uh, stories of birth and so forth, and how every one of them has a universal flood story, interestingly, because ancient all ancient men knew there was a universal flood, because the creation itself gives witness to the universal flood if, if we didn't interpret the data by paradigms of modern geology. So uh, if we interpreted it correctly, the rock layers themselves cry out that there was a universal flood. There couldn't be millions of fossils unless there was a flood. Uh, it's, it's, it's something that fallen man in his, in his lust and quest to, to screen out God jumps to conclusions what, uh, so that he doesn't have to submit to God. So... Creation is a slap in the face to that. In the creation story, that what they'll say is, uh, they'll talk about how religion evolved and how because there was, there was one particular pharaoh and there was other places and even in some Native American tribes, they believed in a great spirit or at least one spirit that was kind of greater than the other spirits. And even in Hinduism, certain gods are kind of more great than other gods. And, and that therefore monotheism evolved. And the, the reason there's a similarity in the structure of the literature is because it, it evolved. No, there's a similarity in the structure of the literature because Moses educated in, all, in the courts of Pharaoh. Uh, another sports reference, Moses served in Pharaoh's courts. No, uh, tennis, tennis reference. But uh, 
Moses, educated in Pharaoh's courts, used the forms of Egyptian literature to say the exact opposite message. The whole point was to punch them in the mouth and say, are you kidding? This didn't just happen. It's just not a fortuitous concurrence of atoms. This is in the beginning order. A personal, orderly God created the heavens and the earth according to his foreordained eternal decree. And it, everything in it screams plan. So the creation itself is biblical imagery. Uh, Romans 8, 19 through 22. Uh, a verse that wouldn't be possible unless God foreknew and, and predestined that there would be a fall of man and that there would have to be a second Adam in order to uh, fulfill his ultimate covenant purposes to birth a race of people born of one regal head whose destiny would be to save the, the nations, to exercise dominion over the nations, because the way God exercises lordship is to save you so that you become in harmony with who you were always intended to be because sin causes you not to be in harmony with anything within yourself. That's why you have all kinds of problems when you try to control things and do it your own way at all. It, it inevitably, you're, you're going against a law that's more, more uh, pronounced than gravity. You could no sooner jump out of an airplane and hope it goes well then you could uh, be your own Lord and hope it goes well. Every time you go there in your heart, you begin a process of death and destruction. So God, a God of order, came to in Adam to restore that order and to bring us back into his image. So in Romans, listen to what Paul says about the creation. For, because this was God's plan. Now, that, what's really important here, and Paul makes this clear in Romans, and there's lots of other places in the Bible, God foreordained and, and predestined that man would sin, but not in such a way that he's culpable. It's not his fault, and he's not guilty. We are. Now, that's one of the great mysteries of the Christian faith. God, for, that was something Martin Luther struggled with, horribly for years until he discovered justification by faith. Uh, we are born into this world sinners in such a way that we are the ones that are guilty for it, and we really are. And it's only in beginning to admit that that you begin to be restored and returned to God. So uh, let's read this. For the anxious, anxious is an interesting word. It means to serve two masters. When you're worried, it's because you're not trusting God. Worry is a gift of God to you. If you are worried, God is trying to say you're not thinking right. You're not relating to me right. You're not relating to reality right. A Christian man should be like Alfred E. Newman. What, me worry? No. <laughs> um, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. This is what has from ancient times been predestined. For the creation was subjected to futility. 
God allowed it to be subjected to the second law of thermodynamics, the law of sin and death, and the law of second law thermodynamics are one and the same. Uh, all things die. All things uh, lose energy. All things break down into increasing randomness. All things go up, uh, toward away from the in initial creation in order to chaos because of sin. Sin it is throughout the whole creation. The second law of thermodynamics is just a little bit of the whole law of sin and death. So um, the, the creation itself, uh, where were we? It was subjected to futility, corruption, death, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption. Isn't that awesome? Your someday your car's not going to rust out. Someday you won't need new shoes. Someday uh, you won't be like I was last night after my wife, wife and I walked through uh, Clifton Gorge for about three hours yesterday. And I was getting into bed. I was like, my whole body aches everywhere. <laughs> that didn't used to happen when I was young. And uh, so someday uh, we were even speculating on what will the woods be like when everything's not subject to a cycle of death? We can't even imagine that, can we? So um, sub, uh, we'll be set free from its uh, slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God or the sons of God, as it was talked about up here, the revealing of the sons of God. Same theme he's still on. For we know that the whole creation, not just mankind, when man fell, it affected the animal kingdom, the plant kingdom, the rock kingdom, and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Everything. Uh, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Now there's another theme woven into here. The, pain, the, the theme of the pain of childbirth. And since we're having so many babies, I'm going to jump over to that one for just a minute. Then we'll come back to number two, mankind. When God pronounced to Eve that he would greatly increase her pain in childbirth, it wasn't specifically a judgment on Eve any more than Adam because they had both sinned and were both equally culpable. And it's not some disrespecting of women. What it is is a parable of the fact that when man fell, God knew that he would birth the kingdom anyway but that the kingdom would be birthed through much travail and pain. That's why Peter says, in 1 Peter, I think 4.18 or something like this, he sa says that um, it's time for judgment to begin with the house of God. We get judged first. The, the beautiful beauty of being a son or daughter of God is he chastens every son he receives. He's much harder on us than he is on the worldly people. Because he loves us. And he's, his chastisement and his disciplines are out of love. Believe me, your sin will find you out. And hopefully, as Hebrews 12 says, it will eventually yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Thank you, God, for your chastisements. Just like the, his mercies, they're new every morning. And so... Um, 
Then he goes on to say, for if it is with difficulty that the righteous are saved, what will become of the godless and the sinner? Now, this won't sell. We'll never have a mega church. I'll never have 10,000 people in the audience if I, if I continue to say stuff like this, which I can't seem to get away from. But the Christian life is tough. It's not for the faint-hearted. It's for actually the people who say, I can't do it. It's too tough for me. Save me. I'm willing to do it. <laughs> and, and reach out and receive the faith to, to take up your cross daily, to deny yourself. It's full of suffering. And we have got to get past what Israel couldn't get past. Cursed is everyone who dies in a tree. Anyone who uh, God chastens is going to have to go through death in order that life may come. To the degree that you stop running from being crucified and willingly accept the, the, the daily deaths of God, to that degree, new life will come, and to that degree, your whole life will become in harmony for who you were always created to be in the first place. And you'll get rid of your whatever problems you're struggling with, the sins of the flesh, anger management, fears, worries, control freak, whatever you've got, God will set you free, but he only will through death. Because, again, another parable of childbirth, a baby is born out of a grave, a tomb, a womb. And like Christ had to be in the womb three days, and Jonah was in the belly of the whale, or the fish, three days. Oops, little Sunday school, you can't shake it. It's bad, 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 bad. It's a fish, not a, not a whale. And uh, But all of that is... Uh, all of that is God's way of saying that out of death comes life. And when a baby's born, there's blood and there's pain. And there's, in a sense, a death to that cozy environment and a coming out into a much harder environment. And he's he or she is destined to grow up and under God take dominion of that environment. So childbirth itself, the, the proverb says there is no birthing without travail. You know, I'm so glad that, uh, that if you look on our podcast, there's a place that most, uh, I was actually wanting to just get rid of and mix it in with the others, but I think I don't want to now, where it says Wednesday services. It was a bunch of messages I gave to just a handful of people on Wednesday nights about prayer. And a few of the single guys have discovered those messages, and they're having a lot more prayer meetings. And guess what? If I could guess that the, the most important thing ingredient, I mean, loving each other and serving each other and uh, not cheating on your ties, uh, growing up a second tier of leadership, and, you know, I'm so glad that we should have over 20 people that have completed the systematic theology class by the end of this next running and all, all these things, if, but if I could say what's probably the most important would be small groups of people getting together to pray. And anybody can do that. Anybody can say it just takes God somehow giving you the faith to believe that he births all things out of the labor of prayer. Everything is birthed out of travail. And so... That is why 
God, because we're, because it's a fallen world and the kingdom is going to be birthed out of pain. It already was birthed out of pain. The death of the Son of God. Second thing we want to talk about is mankind. The whole Bible is a giant-sized biblical word picture about mankind, and there's many sub-pictures. Marriage, uh, uh, father-son, parents, children, uh, cities. Everything that has to do with with mankind is itself to teach us about God. That's why I say one of the wonderful things about having kids is you learn so much about God. If you're struggling with uh, the fact that you fall once in a while and thinking that God is going to give up on you and he's really ticked off and he's so disappointed, and if you've not had a very affirming kind of a situation uh, in your life where you don't understand the grace of God deeply in your life, meditate on a parent taking their child through learning how to walk. I've never yet, there's probably some psychotics that are out there that would, but uh, I've never yet known a parent that when their kid takes their first step says, I knew if you tried, you'd fail and you'd fall. (laughs) Right? But we all kind of think God's that way toward us, don't we? So believe me, God has, God has put things in the natural realm just to teach us about himself. And everything that has to do with human life teaches us about God. I've been uh, kind of excited to see both, of, both Carla and John have taken up gardening in the last couple of years. I thought that was interesting that they both got in. I don't know if you got each other interested in it or not, but... Uh, But I've had a garden from time to time. The year before I moved to Dayton, I just took the whole summer off and had a garden. And I'm like thinking out there weeding things, thinking I'm wasting a lot of time with my garden. But, But I learned so much about seeds and soil and sun and nutrients and water and, and, and how things actually grow and how they need to be pruned and, and so forth. And that's why the Bible's full of teachings about God from them, from Everything in, on creation and mankind. Third thing, let's talk on human on weddings and marriage since uh, we're coming up to a wedding June 5th, right? Is that the right thing? Seventh. I'll be early. <laughs> Two days early. Where is everybody? Okay. Uh, <laughs> all right. Um, human history began with a wedding, right? Genesis 2, 27. God formed Eve out of... Uh, Adam's side and so forth. Uh, same thing is said in Genesis 5-2. Uh, weddings and marriage are a biblical picture of God's covenant relationship to his people. Here are some scriptures along that line. I, I basically cut and pasted as many scriptures as I had time for. I'm having a lot of problems with my computer and the thing just jumps all over the place and I have to read do everything and probably it's taken me about three times as long as it should I'm uh, hopefully you and I can go buy a new computer th- this week by the way I really need that um, so um, but I cut it and pasted as many scriptures as I could on this subject and and what I really like is Psalm 19 4 through 5 in them he's placed a tent for the sun that is in the heavens because uh, uh, it's up the rest of the verses up higher which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to, to run its course. So two word pictures. The, the, the 
the physical sun that rises every morning is compared in the Bible to Jesus, the son of righteousness, the son of God. And especially, and also to the people of God who are following in Jesus' footsteps, and that the path of the righteous will get lighter and lighter till the fullness of day. The sun is like a bridegroom. Now, here's some other examples. Genesis 24. I obviously didn't have room on two, I, to, to cut and paste it. Please read that chapter many times. I probably taught on it, uh, Counting the Right State, Thursday Night Bible Study, half a dozen times this year. And hopefully there's no one sitting here that hasn't read it as a result of that, but I, I don't want to show of hands. I'll probably start crying. Uh, Genesis 24, major biblical theme, are all interwoven, and it's the whole Bible in one chapter. If you want to, know, want to cheat ahead and know what the whole Bible has to see, just read Genesis 24. Abraham is a foreshadowing of God the Father. His servant, who doesn't name himself, is because of the humility of the author who is the Holy Spirit. And his servant makes a covenant with the Father, God's eternal covenant, Hebrews 13, 20, to go to a faraway land, speaking of the world, to uh, the Spirit is sent to a faraway land to get a bride for Isaac, who's a foreshadowing of the Son of God. Isaac unstops wells. He causes life to flow. Jesus said to the woman in Samaria, if you knew who you were talking to, you would have asked me, instead of me asking you to draw water from the well, you would ask me to, to give you water from my well. Isaac's well. The son of God. He takes, uh, he takes camels full of gifts, precious gold. Speaking of the gifts of the Spirit and all the gifts of redemption and everything, we've been doing a great series on gifts on Thursday nights. We're actually going to finish it in two weeks. And the next two Thursday nights will get us through to the end of it. Uh, and uh, he tells him, don't just get any woman. Don't take a woman from the daughters of Canaan. Speaking of wit, of that in order to be part of the bride of Christ, you have to become a covenant person. You have to become a person of the covenant. You have to go through the uh, conviction of sin, confession of sin, repentance, and a change of lordships, and you have to get water baptized to, to acknowledge that. A covenant transaction, a covenant ceremony. In water baptism and baptism in the Holy Spirit is a great example of biblical math, two or one. We're going to have a wedding in June 5th, and we're going to have God, June, June 7th. I'm going to be there in June 5th. i got to practice. <laughs> June 7th, and uh, hopefully I'll get it right by then. And uh, we're, going to, uh, we're going to stand as ministers of God, not just the minister, but the, the bride's men or whatever they're called, the grooms or groomsmen or whatever, and uh, the, the bridesmaids and, and the people, because you stand on behalf of God to enter into a three-way covenant, God, Edwin, Beth, those three become one. One plus one plus one equals one in the Bible. And likewise, there is one baptism, baptism in water and baptism in the Holy Spirit. Two baptisms are one baptism. 
And they're both part of the covenant introduction to the kingdom. And without uh, the two becoming one, you'll have things missing in your Christian life that will hinder your maturity. So uh, that's all just Genesis 24. Election. Guess what? Uh, do I get a re- Isaac married Rebecca, right? He, uh, Rebecca Trumbach. Uh, she didn't choose Isaac. She wasn't looking for him. God the Father sent his servant, the Holy Spirit, to, to find a bride. And he gave her gifts and, and put rings on her and covenant symbols and said, come on. Just that's how God does it with us. You know, the, the truce of election, covenant, basically the whole Bible. Hosea. Now, uh, you probably, your kids probably need to be at least 12 before they read Hosea. <laughs> it's, it's not, uh, it's at least R-rated. Uh, but basically, God tells Hosea, the only Mexican prophet. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, he t- tells Hosea, a Mexican guy used to tell me that joke all the time. He thought it was wonderful. Um, Hosea is called to marry a lady named Gomer. Yeah, not Gomer Pyle from the television show. And she is very unfaithful. <laughs> I'm, I'm off the chain today. Uh, and she is unfaithful. And the reason God does it is a word picture to say, this is how Israel is to me. They're supposed to be my faithful bride. I wooed her with gifts. I sent my servant, the Holy Spirit, to, to draw her. I made covenant with her. And she keeps going off and cheating with the bales and the asterisks and all and the consumerism and materialism and worrying and all the other gods that we have. That's why James in his epistle says, You adulteresses. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Now, that's his loving letter to Christians. <laughs> no, one would ever, no one would ever read a verse like that, not, especially not in the tone that James says. You adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? If you, I dare you to get serious before God by yourself in your prayer class and say, God, show me all the ways in which I'm an adulteress uh, and, and, and eradicate them out of me. Cause me not to be a friend of the world, but to come to a place where, it, like Jesus did at the Last Supper, when he said, no longer do I call you servants, but I call you friends. You know, we have all these Christian songs about, I got a friend in Jesus. I just wonder if he has a friend in me. Or if I would deny him three times, as, as I've done so many times. That seems to me a bigger issue. Uh, John 4, the woman at the well, there's so many, you know. Here's Jesus, the true husband, talks to the, to the woman who's had five husbands. And it's impressive that he has a spiritual word of knowledge that tells her you've had five husbands. But you know what's more impressive? He has another gift of the spirit called discernment of spirits. And he says to this woman, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that's talking to you, you would have asked me for living water because dear woman, you're, you're a desert. You're thirsty. 
you're dying of thirst. And I see you more than clearly than you see anything. And I need, need to tell you, you need to drink of me. And Jesus is saying that to us today. Um, moving on, I got to, you know, by the way, in John 4, he talks on marriage, wells, you know, wells all through the Bible. Uh, starting in, in Genesis, the, you know, 1, 2, and 3, I'll probably stay on this another week or two, just the first three chapters of Genesis, but there's four rivers, right, that take the water to the four corners and the four winds of the earth. And that means that, that means that Eden was on a mountain because runners, rivers don't run uphill. As the uh, first plumbers, I, I used to be a carpenter and we used to subcontract to plumbers. And I said, I think plumbing is interesting and fascinating. He goes, nah, you don't need to know anything to be a plumber, except everything needs a trap, can't leave any leaks, and poop doesn't run uphill. <laughs> and I'm like, Brilliant. And, his, and then don't forget the payday is Friday. But uh, <laughs> now you're a plumber. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, water doesn't run uphill. Eden was on a mountain. Uh, let's finish this Christ or marriage things a little bit more. Jesus, true food. John 6, he says he's true food, but he's telling in John 4, he tells the woman and his disciples, I have food to eat that you know not of. Now, here's, here's the, the difference between someone who's eating of God and not. He said, my food is to accomplish the work for which he sent me. One of the things that anyone who's ever raised kids will know is uh, when you give them chores, they will say, I'm done. And then you'll go check it and you'll go, what? <laughs> Your definition of done and my definition of done, we've got to bring them a little closer together. And guess what? I'm an old geezer and I don't change. <laughs> so yeah, well, let's move your definition of done a little bit more toward mine. You know, accomplishing things. You know, God will give you opportunities. He'll give you scholarship opportunities. Uh, he'll give you uh, job opportunities. He'll give you relationship opportunities. And how you can tell a child from a grown-up is the person takes the opportunity and stays with the opportunity till the end. Ephesians, Christ and his church. Uh, that parable of uh, has, of course, is from the Old Testament, actually. And it has other parables, washing of water with the word, leaving and cleaving. He actually quotes Genesis 2 when he says, for this cause a man will leave and cleave, Paul does. Having a, a wife without blemish, spot or wrinkle. What did the Passover lamb have to be? A lamb without blemish. What do we have to be if we're going to partake of the lamb? We have to be without blemish. And guess what? You're not going to do that this morning by the performance you had this week. You're going to do it by humbling yourself and partaking of the blood of the lamb. Because there's no other basis where you could have no blemish, spot, or wrinkle. Uh, flip over, human history is moving toward a marriage, the supper of the lamb. 
Revelation mentions uh, the uh, weddings over and over and over. Uh, 19, 6 through 8, this was one of my mother's favorite verses. probably still is. Um, then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters. The Revelation has just has all these images colliding together and interwoven together all the time. It's the most biblical book of the Bible. Uh, the, the key to understanding Revelation is not to buy all these premillennial like, you know, books and how it's all going to fall apart, but to read the rest of the Bible and use Scripture to interpret Scripture. So, the, you know, the many waters, mighty peals of thunder, hallelujah, the Lord reigns, he already reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad today. If you're worrying, you don't realize he's reigning. Give glory to him for the marriage supper of the Lion has come and their bride has made herself ready. I noticed Beth's been jogging lately. <laughs> I've never known a bride who doesn't like go through a lot of stuff to get ready, Right. How can we be the bride of Christ and not be like working toward being ready for the wedding day? 1 John 3, 3 says, we, no one has seen him, but we know that when we see him, we will become like him. And anyone who has that hope purifies himself. If you have tasted that the Lord is kind, if you've really experienced the Lord, a growing affection of your life, a growing passion, something that should rise up and kill all passivity in your life and all laziness and all apathy, is the passion to be like him and to be purified. If that's not growing, something's terribly wrong with your Christian life. Uh, well, we, we covered the first four. Next week, we'll look at mountains. M you know, mountains would take like a whole sermon in itself. There's mountains everywhere. The Sermon on the Mount, the Mount Olivet Discourse that we just took, covered in Tuesday night, uh, Rock Campus Fellowship. Um, by the way, the Mount Olivet Discourse is uh, uh, the key to understanding how to interpret the New Testament. And that's, it's in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, we'll look at trees. We'll look at sanctuaries, temples, gardens. Uh, that why, that's why Jesus became a gardener when he rose from the dead, like John pointed out in his wonderful Easter sermon. Uh, seeds, four rivers. We're going to look at serpents. Don't talk to strange serpents, etc. So we'll pick this up again next week.